I know what you find annoying because I find it annoying. And that's when somebody wins a championship and they say these magical words that every person says after winning a championship. It used to be, I'm going to Disneyland. Remember when people used to say that? But now they say these other words, I am so humbled. And here's why it's annoying. Maybe you're not as annoyed as me, but I can see it in your faces. You don't understand my annoyance on this issue. But here's why I'm so annoyed. It's because winning is not humbling. Winning is pride-inducing. In fact, I think that it's probably one of the most pride-inducing things to be a superstar athlete in the United States of America who has just won a championship. That is not humbling in any way. That is pride building and they should look into the camera and go hey here's the thing I just feel so arrogant right now you know because I'm better than all of those other guys that were trying to play this year you with me I mean isn't that true there's nothing uh, about winning a championship that induces humility losing in a championship in front of millions of people uh, that is a sign of humility and it's interesting because Uh, these people, these athletes, are are like the least humble people. And it seems like people like Michael Jordan that win and win and win and win, they become less and less and less humble to the point where they are obnoxiously arrogant and they're just kind of annoying to listen to to them, it's annoying to listen to them talk. Let me just give you a definition from dictionary.com, very official, uh, of, of humility. Not proud or arrogant, modest. Not proud or arrogant, modest. Now, have you ever seen true humility? Not like, I won a championship, I'm so humbled, but like true humility, where somebody does something that is just so unproud, just so modest, that it, that it stands out. And in, in some ways, what I think it does is it, it, it humanizes people that otherwise would seem kind of just like, you know, rock stars or celebrities or whatever. Uh, I used to work at a retirement home. That was my longest job other than my work here at Creekside. And uh, I remember a guy telling me a story once, and he had worked on the Spruce Goose that now sits over there in McMinnville. And he's up on top of the Spruce Goose, on the top level of the Spruce Goose, and he's working on building, however that all works. And he's building the thing, and he drops his wrench. And at the same time, a couple of guys are walking by, and he yells down at one of the guys. He says, hey, can you grab my wrench for me? And the guy grabs his wrench and hands it back up to him and continues to walk on his way. And his coworker turns to him and goes, are you an idiot? What are you doing? And he's like, what, what? He's like, that was Howard Hughes, the guy paying for the plane and, and Howard Hughes had said nothing to him just handed him his wrench back and we have this persona of Howard Hughes as this rich kind of playboy that's the mindset that, that I have about him just public perception but when I hear of, a, of a, a humble story like that a guy just picking up a wrench and handing it back it, for me it just humanizes the person a little more and says that he wasn't too big or too great or, or, or too special in his own eyes to just help one of his employees 
I heard a similar story about George Washington and uh, George Washington, uh, a guy didn't know him and you say, how could somebody not know George Washington? But think back before we had internet and TV and things like that. But uh, when he was president, uh, somebody in the army didn't know him and it was a captain and, and these, these other guys, the uh, just soldiers, regular old soldiers, not people with, uh, that were officers, were trying to move this log and George Washington looks at this guy and says, hey, why aren't you helping them? And the guy says, I'm a captain. And George Washington goes and he helps them and, and he walks back by the captain and says, hey, next time your men have trouble moving a log, call your commander in chief. And, and it's like, that's humble because he didn't have to because he, he was bigger than that in some ways, but he stepped down and he was willing to, to do something that was just not prideful. It was just lowly in some way. And I heard another story about LaMarcus Aldridge and I, I don't like LaMarcus Aldridge as a basketball player, and now he's a traitor uh, because he went to the San Antonio Spurs, but there's this one story that really just endures me to him and, and makes me not want to dislike him as much as, as I would like to dislike him, and, and that is that, that one Christmas, uh, he had met one kid that was at a children's hospital, hospital in the Portland metro area, and one Christmas, he spent his whole Christmas, not just like dropping off gifts or something, but his whole Christmas hanging out with these people in this, in this place and, and spending time with them and bringing gifts and, and doing whatever to make them feel better. And it's like, he doesn't have to do that. He didn't need to do that. It wasn't something that was publicized. It wasn't an official Portland Trailblazers event or anything like that. He just stepped down off of his you know, all-star status pedestal, and he did something out of humility. And these stories stand out because in some ways, they connect us to these people. I mean, a guy grabbing a wrench, a president moving a log, all of a sudden you're like, I, I see in you this humility, this humanity that makes me feel differently about you. And as we try to declutter Christmas, that's the goal, and that's really why we had to change the lyric today, because when you're trying to declutter something, you can't add clutter to it in the songs, and uh, as we try to like strip down Christmas and, and try to get to ba- back to the heart of what Christmas is and, and, and what Christmas is all about and what uh, the writer Luke and his gospel that he wrote for a guy named Theophilus really wanted us to understand about the birth of Jesus, it's important for us today, and hopefully this came through in our music this morning, Today, just to get back to the very humble birth of Jesus and to remember that that it wouldn't have been humbling for Jesus to show up in a mansion as champion of the world, but it was humbling for him to show up in a feeding trough, uh, to show up in, in a barn in our modern day language and be laid where the animals ate. That was humbling. And that's what we're going to look at today. And and here's the thing about it. This is what I want. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci said, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. You might have thought that was Apple Incorporated, but it was actually Leonardo da Vinci who said that. And uh, and I think that, first of all, as we look at just this humble birth of Jesus, uh, in Luke 2, 1 through 7, first of all, we see a beauty that is just magnificent. I mean, just that, that our God, let me just jump right to the point, that our God would come down and, and be born uh, and laid in a feeding trough is beautiful. And we'll talk more about that in a second. And, 
And, and here's the other part that, that I think is just really important for us to get to. And that, that is that as we look at this beautiful story of humility, it should draw us closer to Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian and, and, and you may just have this idea about God and about Jesus that he's up there and he's mean and he doesn't fix the things that you want him to fix and he hasn't answered those certain prayers and he gave you a parent like you had and, and you just can't fathom that he would be at all good or at all nice or at all care about you. And in this story today, we, we see this humility and, and what the humility says is that like George Washington or Howard Hughes or LaMarcus Aldridge, God was willing to get into our mess and to get into our lives and be humble enough that just to engage you. And if you are a Christian, maybe more than any other sermon in this series as we go through this holiday season together, this might be the one that, that you just need to go back to this passage and go, wow, this, this says something magnificent about what God is like and how much God cares about me. And so would you turn over, if you have a Bible or an app, would you turn to Luke 2, 1 through 7? And as you do that, I want to remind you that uh, Luke was one of the first Christian missionaries. We've talked about that every week in this series. But he's a Christian missionary who was paid by a guy named Theophilus to write a, a book, an orderly account about the life of Jesus. And, and that's interesting because it shows us just God working through kind of normal human circumstances to give us part of the Bible when somebody was actually uh, paying for it to be done. That's really cool. Theophilus was a Roman guy whose Christmas had not been cluttered. He probably uh, had been involved at some point in his life in emperor worship, and he was a guy that was just kind of like God, the Jewish God, and had an idea about him and, and was interested in him, but was not a Christian person when the Gospel of Luke was written. But we think he becomes a Christian by the time Luke's second book, the book of Acts in the Bible, was written. And so this book that, that Luke writes for Theophilus is is so impactful to Theophilus that it's believed widely that he becomes a Christian because of what is written there. And Luke starts the story of Jesus with Christmas. It's a good place to start. The birth narrative of Jesus. And I'll remind you once again that Luke is known as an incredible historian. And so it's not surprising that he begins in, in Luke 2, 1 through 3 with these words. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town. So these are facts, simple facts, uh, that Theophilus would have known about. Luke is just saying in some ways, hey, I want you to know when this took place. It, it would not be that different than me saying this took place during the 2010 census in the United States of America. Basically the same idea. These census would have been taken in order that every person could be registered uh, in the Roman Empire. And that happened for a couple of reasons. It helped the Caesar uh, dictate the laws of the land. And it also helped him to know how much tax money he should be bringing in. And so Caesar Augustus is doing this so that he can kind of get a better idea of what is taking place in his country, in his empire, so that he can rule the land a little bit better and get a, a little bit richer. Now, we know a few things about those days, as Luke describes them. First of all, the Romans were on top of the world. This is during the Roman Empire. They're huge. They're big. Everybody's scared of them. Uh, everybody uh, is frightened about how much land they're going to take, and they are really the greatest 
empire ever to be on the face of the earth to that point. We also know that the Jewish people were under the oppression of the Roman people. And the Romans weren't too bad to the Jews. They let them kind of have their religion and kind of do their own thing a lot of times. But they were in charge of them and the Jewish people were at the whims and the ways of the Romans. We also know that in those days, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin most likely, had just been born. And it had been set up for us by the writer Luke. And this is the time period in which Luke is writing. We also know this, this is really important. All this history is going to matter in a second, I promise. And maybe you won't find it fascinating at all, but it's really important. We know some serious things about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was one of Rome's greatest rulers. And that says quite a bit. Um, he had become uh, the emperor of Rome after a civil war that began after his cousin uh, Julius Caesar who actually adopted him was killed you may know the words e2 brute that's famous from Shakespeare Julius Caesar dies three people take over Rome and uh, over time uh, partly because of Cleopatra gets involved and love gets involved and that messes up everything right uh, and then uh, there's a civil war and all of a sudden Caesar Augustus not his real name rises to power uh, and so we know that he during his time uh, helped shape the Pax Romana, the time of peace in Rome. He helped build modern roadways, the most modern roadways that the world at that time had ever known. They were incredible. And this was, for all intents and purposes, Rome's kind of greatest, nicest leader. Where you have other leaders who are just killing all their family members in order to stay in power. Julius Caesar was not, excuse me, Caesar Augustus was not that way. In fact, he was such a great emperor that it was believed that he was born of God. You pay attention to that. And one Greek writer even declared him to be the savior of the world. Now Caesar Augustus, great ruler, you know, had, a, had some reasons to feel good about what he accomplished. But I'd like to point this out because, again, it's going to set us up for what we're going to read in just a second. Uh, this was not his real name. He took the name Caesar Augustus. And the two words mean uh, king and one worthy of reverence. That's the opposite of humility, right? I mean, Caesar Augustus, probably after he won that civil war, looked into a camera somewhere and said, this is just such a humbling feeling to be announced emperor of Rome. But it didn't humble him at all. In fact, it made him more arrogant, declaring himself a king that is to be reverenced, and I'm sure accepting greatly the worship of every person in his country. Now, set that up with Luke 1.31. And in Luke 1.31, an angel is talking to Mary, a passage we've already studied, and listen what happens there. He says to Mary, the angel says to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and, he will, and you will call him, you are to call him Jesus. That means God saves. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Are you seeing the setup? Here's Caesar Augustus that the world has declared as perhaps born of God, a deity of sorts. And here's Caesar Augustus, who at least one writer uh, that we have saved through history, declared to be the savior of the world. And an angel shows up and looks at this little peasant nobody girl named Mary and says, actually, you are going to give birth to the son of God and he will be the savior of the world. Now put yourself in Theophilus' shoes. Just think like him. A guy that had grown up thinking he should probably worship 
every emperor that Rome ever had that he needed to worship every emperor that he ever had, who probably looked at Caesar Augustus and said, this is an incredible guy. This is a guy who seems like he should be worshipped, if any of the emperors should be worshipped. This is a guy who has brought peace to our land, who has expanded our roads, who has kept us safe, who has made our economy good, and who seems just more incredible than any, ro- any ruler we've ever had but I'm kind of interested in God. I kind of like the idea of this God person. Hey, Luke, can you tell me about this Jesus character that I've been hearing so much about? Here's the deal. His mom heard from an angel that he was going to be the son of God. Well, that's weird because I thought that was Caesar Augustus. And he's going to be the savior of the world. Wait, I thought we already had a savior, our emperor. And so Theophilus is set up in this moment. And and I think that what Luke describes in the next few verses is incredible. And and in verses four and five, he just gets us a little more detail before he really hits us with the big stuff. Verses four and five. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. First of all, with exclamation points, I'd like to say Joseph was still around. We know that because we have nativity scenes, but for Theophilus, that's a big deal. I mean, all of a sudden, this, this engaged couple, in our words, it's not a strict engagement. It was much more serious than our engagement. It couldn't be broken off and things like that. Uh, this couple who is, in their terms, engaged, they're going to get married, they're committed to each other. One of them finds out that she's pregnant and looks at this other guy and goes, uh, the, the man in the situation goes, I promise, an angel told me that I was going to give birth, I'm still a virgin. And at Theophilus, if you're reading along and you've never seen a nativity and you don't know the story, you're like, oh man, is Joseph going to stick around? Is he still going to be there? Because he has every opportunity to go away. He has every opportunity to have her punished severely. Is he going to go away? And so just this first line is cool. Go Joseph. We know from the book of Matthew that, that he, an angel visited him too, but Theophilus doesn't have that information. So he's probably just like, wow, Joseph is a bigger man than me. But the other part that Theophilus is probably thinking is this is a serious bummer that they have to walk all the way to the, the family, uh, the, the place where the family was from, Bethlehem, from Nazareth, because it's a long, long walk. It's about a 34-hour uh, trip. It's 100 miles. And so here it is on Google Maps again. It's about 34 hours, 100 miles. And this makes it even worse. This is just like making what seems like a bad day even worse. It's about 700 feet more in elevation. So they have to go on with a very, very pregnant wife. And I don't know if you've been around pregnant people, but uh, it's not that easy to be very, very pregnant as far as I can tell. And uh, they're going uphill uh, 700 feet. It sounds terrible. And I think that's probably Theophilus' first thought. Now, this is going to take, just let's add this up just really quickly so you can just kind of think about how much of a bummer this is with me. At eight hours of walking a day, that's a lot of walking for a girl that's about nine months pregnant. Eight hours walking a day, that's a four-day walk if you're good at math. Four days, eight hours a day, and she's about to give birth to a baby. And I'm pretty sure that Theophilus would have thought, this is not very fun. 
Now, I don't know what Theophilus knew about Bethlehem, but it's an interesting city for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, it, it was the home, and this is the most important reason, of Israel's most prominent king, David. Uh, when a prophet finds David and says, God has declared you to be the next king, he's out tending the flocks, watching the sheep, uh, outside of a city called Bethlehem where his family lived. Naomi and Ruth, other famous biblical characters, if you know them in the Bible, this is the town that they uh, returned to. Uh, Rachel, another famous biblical woman, was buried there and also most important, tied with the line of David, is that this was the place that was prophesied for the Messiah to be born. And so they are walking to a city where we can tell that the prophecy of the Old Testament that there would be a king in the line of David that would come and who would reign forever is going to be born and he is going to set everything right for Israel, for the Jewish people and ultimately for the whole world. And here's all the background information, okay? We have Caesar Augustus versus Jesus, matchup of the you know, every, all, all time maybe. And, and then we have uh, this promise of a Messiah who is going to be king, who is going to reign forever for the Jewish people. And Theophilus doesn't know all that we know, how it begins. So just again, try to put yourself in his brain. He's got to be saying, what's going to happen next? This is going to be incredible. Something miraculous is going to take place. Yeah, there's going to be fireworks. There's going to be a castle. It's going to be like a Disney movie. And, and here's... Here's what it says in Luke 2, 6 through 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let's read it again. One more time. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. And this is the simplest part of the whole story. It was interesting as I was preparing for this sermon that verses 1 through 7, Luke chapter 2, it was like the hardest part to find any kind of point. I'm like looking at it and I'm like, man, that is not that different than me going, and so when Hazel was born, we drove to the hospital. And there it is. Go celebrate Christmas. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what Luke gives to us. There's nothing magical. There's nothing supernatural feeling about it. There is simply humility. Simply humility. Let me just show you a few of these humble things. First of all, he was swaddled. Uh, we just stopped swaddling Hazel about a week ago because she can roll on her face now, and uh, she's very advanced. I know, you don't have to tell me. And, uh, and we began, uh, we stopped swaddling her, but we have swaddled her up until that point, and babies get swaddled today for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it calms them down and helps them to stop crying. And second of all, and I didn't really get this before I had a baby. Maybe I was just, I don't know. I'm around babies quite a bit, but I didn't know. They have like this horrible startle reflex. It's horrible the first time you see it. It's like Hazel's laying there and she's like, 
and then she goes right back. It's terrible. It's really, it's like, it's basically like if you were sleeping and then we just came up and we like set an alarm off in your face or something and you're just like this. But then she just would go back to sleep sometimes. But as they get older after that beginning, then they, they wake up. And so you swaddle because it somehow, and I don't know how this works biologically at all, but it prevents them from having, having that startle effect, probably because they still feel like they're in the womb or something weird like that. Uh, and apparently in the first century, babies were also swaddled in order to keep their limbs safe. I don't know what was going on in the first century that they had to protect their limbs, but they were partly to keep them safe and straight. I don't know if they dropped their babies more or what, and they're like, oh man, there's axes everywhere, and I don't know, but that, that's just what I read, so take it for what it's worth. And so here's the idea. We have a picture that we'll put up on the screen for you here. Um, you can see that it's not like our swaddles today. We have a little zip-up swaddle um, because basically you feel like every kid is going to die in the world today, um, but they just had strips of cloth, and so Mary would have taken these strips of cloth, and, and she would have wrapped them uh, around her baby in order to keep him safe and in order to keep him from waking up and things like that. Uh, the second thing we know is that he was laid in a manger. Uh, we don't know that Jesus was born in a stable. Maybe that's surprising to you. We just kind of assume that. We have our little nativities and they're these little triangle-shaped things and, uh, and all that. We know uh, that he was born, uh, that he was placed in a manger. Now, a manger, we always have wood ones, uh, interestingly enough, but that wasn't good enough for me. If I'm going to complain about no crying he makes, then I need to try to get the accurate manger. But, but I think it's, it's an even better story when you know what a first century manger would have been like. Uh, it actually would have looked, uh, it would have been made of stone probably. And so we made this. Ours comes complete with handles, which is awesome. Uh, but it was a feeding trough that was basically just hollowed out stone so they could put hay in it and the animals could eat out of it. And so we always have these wood things that we look at, but this is a much better representation of what that would have looked like. And so I just want to, I want to just say at this point that babies are really fragile. I have one now, and so I can say that with a little bit more authority. Uh, babies are really fragile. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen birth. Also, I want to point this out. It's, it's, a, it's, woo, it's disgusting, man. It's gross. It's everything I didn't want it to be. Um, every, I mean, I had a great angle. I was super good. So here's Bren. I won't demonstrate too fully, but facing that way, that way. And I'm kind of up here uh, angling this way so that I can see as little as possible. But, and you may not know this, but Hazel uh, was born still in the water, um, almost. She didn't quite get out. And so it's, it's pretty rare. So she's coming out and the nurse who's done this for like 14 years goes, I've never seen this before. And I'm thinking like, oh, this is a catch-22. I stay up here and I don't see it or I lean over and I get a view of this kind of thing that's pretty crazy. And so I leaned over and it was pretty cool. I, I didn't know what was happening. It looked like an animal was coming out. But, um, but, but she was still kind of like you, like you kind of see with like a cat, I think. She was like still inside of her water as she was, as she was coming out. She must have really liked that. Uh, so I... I I look down there and then she, and all kinds of bad breaks out. Now, I'm not saying this just to be crude or gross. I'm trying to put this in perspective for you. Because what happened immediately after in our modern day setting is you have 
four people immediately cleaning everything up, trying to sterilize things, trying to stop bleeding, trying to make sure that everything is okay. Jesus comes out, gets swaddled. Joseph's trying to deal with multiple things here. And then he's placed in a feeding trough. There's nothing more humbling than that that I can think of, maybe in the history of the world. It's not sanitary. It's not safe. The hay probably uh, was a SIDS risk for Jesus. I mean, uh, this, is, this is not a castle. This is not a nice bassinet. This is a disgusting, gross feeding trough. And then the other thing that we see from him, oh, oh and I want to go back, sorry, that babies are, are just so fragile. Uh, our nephew Rogan chucked a remote in the air not too long ago, and Hazel was laying there, and slam, it hits her in the face. Nobody sees it happen. We don't know exactly how high he threw it, but he throws pretty well. I've taught him everything I know, and, uh, and, and it slams her in the face. And, and it's like a remote, and I'm thinking she's going to die, and we're calling the advice nurse, and they're taking it very serious because we take head trauma seriously. Super scary. It's, it's not, it, and it's, she's just like this little thing that, and here she is in a, in a stone little animal feeding trough if she was Jesus, you know? I mean, that's so weird to think about. I have a good friend, and it's part of the reason I'm so paranoid with, with Hazel. Uh, one of my best friends growing up, baby, died of SIDS. And uh, perfectly healthy, normal baby, and it just dies. Just dies. And Jesus shows up in this form, in this animal area of a house or a cave or a barn, however we want to see history, and is laid in their feeding thing. That's incredible. And it tells us that it all happened. It all went down this way because there was no room for the family in the inn or probably better translated guest house. I talked about how there's no innkeeper and at least one person in our church didn't uh, believe me and so they, they were online trying to be like, no, there has to be an innkeeper. I mean, there's definitely an innkeeper in this story. I know it. Uh, and there's no innkeeper and, and we don't even know what this word's translated in, but we know that wherever they were trying to stay, there was no room. That could have been in a family member's house. That could have been in like a, a temporary uh, camping structure that the Romans would have set up for all the people coming in for the census. But no matter where it was, there was no room for him. This is pretty much the definition of humbling. The Messiah King who would reign forever, Emmanuel, God with us, came to us in a normal, simple, and most importantly, humble way. And I'm telling you what, we don't think about it, and we have these ideas and these pictures and these stupid nativities. I like nativities, but the stupid ones where, where there's glowing, and Jesus has a halo, and Mary looks perfect, and everything is great, and the animals are cooing at the baby, and they're bowing in worship, and we see it like that, but Theophilus just would have gone, wow, that's pretty disgusting, and that's pretty scary because that baby was fragile, and poor Joseph and what does it all mean that this King, Messiah, God with us, Savior of the world would be born in this setting? Even in the swaddling picture we just showed, can we put that back up? Even in that picture, the swaddling picture that we just showed, what are the implications here? Mary's glowing. 
She's wearing red. I mean, it's just, a, it's perfect. Jesus isn't making any crying. You know, I mean, this is not what it was like, and Theophilus would have known, and we should know too. Now, I want to jump ahead here, and I'm trying not to do this in this series. I'm trying to stick with Theophilus's brain and say, what would he have experienced the first time reading this? How would this have mattered to him? But I think it's really important for us to look forward in the New Testament and go, what did the humility of Jesus mean? Why, why, why did the God of the universe, the Savior of all people who choose to accept him, why did he come in this humble state? And, and the Bible answers that question for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humility of Christmas, the manger, the rags, they point to salvation. I mean, Jesus was so humble that he was willing not only to take on human flesh and become one of us, but he was so humble that he was even willing to die, to die on a cross so that you might have eternal life. And so when you think about simply Christmas, you must think about the humility that drove Jesus, God of the universe, to step out of his place in heaven and to come here so that you might have eternal life. Winning a championship is not humbling. Going from God to man in a manger wrapped in little strips of cloth because nobody had room for you in the guest house, that's humbling. And it points to the fact that Jesus wants to have a relationship with you so much that he was willing to come here and die because you are a sinful person. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, we read this. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, who, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The humility of Christmas points to deeper connection with God. You see, it's so easy to look and say, well, God's up there and he's, you know, God and what does he have in common with me and how could he ever want to have a relationship with me and how could he listen to me and what do I have that connects me to him and here's what you have. You have Christmas. The manger and the strips of cloth and the lack of room for him in the guest house say, according to Hebrews, that God has connected with you because he understands all of your struggles and all of your difficulties. Have you ever been in a scary situation? You feel scared and you're just like, I'm inadequate to handle this. Jesus was a baby in a manger. Have you ever just been like, I'm helpless and I'm at the whims of other people to help me and I just need help and I wish I didn't need help, but I do need help? There is nobody, there is no creature that needs help more than a baby. I just felt like this is not fun because the world has rejected me because the world doesn't care about me I, there's no room for me in that place or this place Jesus was placed in a manger because there was no room for him that's that's the humility of Christmas and the humility of Christmas points to deeper 
excuse me, it reminds us of how gracious we should be to others. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 through 9. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness in our, in a, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The humility of Christmas says that you should be rich towards others, that you should be gracious towards others, that you should be kind towards others. You see, the Christmas story in its most simplest form is a story of our God showing great humility. And we can think about a rich man grabbing a wrench or a president moving a log, but ultimately we should think about a God becoming baby. Our God becoming a baby. And in this humility, we are brought closer to Jesus because it is, it is in this humility, it is in this most simple part of the Christmas story that we see that God wants to offer us salvation and he wants to offer us a deep connection to him and he wants us to express that graciousness to other people. And so this Christmas, as you go through the holiday, it's so easy to go to the shepherds and it's so easy in the story and it's so easy to go to the angels and go, wow, this is crazy and this is incredible. But I think we need to return to the manger and remember that it points to the humility of Jesus, which points to salvation and connection and it calls us to grace towards other people. Will you pray with me? Lord, what a gift. I mean, what an incredible thing you did. And I know that this morning I'm inadequate to put into words how incredible this scenario would be that you, who I'm talking to now, even 2,000 years later, as you sit in heaven at the right hand of your father, you were placed in a carved out stone, probably with some hay, and you were wrapped in pieces of cloth is incredible. And I pray, Lord, that this Christmas, every one of us would be drawn back to that incredible humility. And Lord, I pray that as we are drawn back to that incredible humility, we would, uh, we would re remember uh, the benefits that it brings to our lives. And for some, maybe they need to give their life to you. They need to accept that gift of salvation for the first time. And I pray that this morning, God, the manger would draw them there. And for others of us, Lord, we just have forgotten. And, and the Christmas season has become all about lights and glitter and decoration and feasts, Lord. And it's so celebratory that we forget how humble the beginnings of the holiday were. And I pray that you would draw us back to that. God, you are great. And you were great long before you were born but when you were born God we saw just how incredible you are in your very nature God because we we and I mean people in humanity's history no longer just saw you as this unreachable untouchable higher than high being but we saw you as all those things 
with a willingness to step down into our stuff so that you could be in relationship with us and we could be in relationship with you. Remind us of that always in your holy name. Amen.